teach people about Jesus Christ, to baptize them in his name, and uh, what an opportunity for us to be sharing the gospel here in DeWitt, and to be, um, many of you have been in different parts of the world sharing the gospel and serving in different ways, uh, but one of the things we do at DeWitt Free is we have a lot of partners that we work with, and uh, it's a great privilege um, to be praying for those that are serving in various parts of our country, various parts of the world, sharing the gospel and doing God's work um, in advancing the kingdom. And so every once in a while, we have the privilege of having some of our missionaries um, back here with us. And today we have Ian Vickers. Uh, most of you know Ian. Uh, for those that don't, uh, Ian's uh, not a stranger here. We know his family. Uh, Matt and Connie have been with us for many years. And uh, Ian actually was one of our pastors for uh, a short time in an interim before they left for France as missionaries. But uh, Ian's going to give us a little bit of an update. And I want to remind you that we have our Sunday school hour that we're starting again today. And uh, Ian is going to be sharing during that time. And so please join us after fellowship. Uh, we'll be upstairs for Sunday school for that as well. But Ian, if you'd go ahead and come on forward and uh, just give us a little bit of an update about what God's doing and where things are at, and we're glad to have you here today. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Good to be here. Good morning. Uh, yes, my name is Ian Vickers. I've been around off and on here, and so it's good to be back. I want to take time to thank you for uh, your supportive work that we're doing in West Africa. Our mission is that women and children will not die but will thrive for generations to come in rural West Africa. So what we do is we put up water wells, water towers, and then we put in maternal or pediatric care, and then we um, are able to make those sustainable, and we're moving throughout West Africa. I've been doing this for the last 15 years. Uh, last year we, we counted, we had over 200,000 people that we reached, um, and uh, I was there last month. Um, there was a baby that was born in one of our newest health centers and a mom and they're doing well and you need to realize that this is a part of the world when when acts 1 8 says go to the uttermost parts of the earth i think we found it um it is really out on the edge most of the people in that population live with a dirt floor uh, no running water no um, electricity um it isn't isolated it's spread throughout all of west africa so literally millions of people live every day like that and so if we can bring the conditions from 1860s to 1960s or 70s, we've made a huge jump. And so we're, we're excited about being able to use this model. So I want to tell you a story, um, and I, I want to bring some slides up here. Uh, when we put in a well, we dedicate a well. It's not a hand pump, it's a tower, because we need the tower to be able to put in a health center afterwards. And we mainly address pediatric care. But wherever we do that, we take an opportunity to talk about uh, the living water, about Jesus. And so here we're in a village, and uh, we will uh, give an announcement to the village after we put the water well in. And imagine in these areas, uh, many there's no church there. there. Many have never even seen anybody outside of that village and, uh, and have no idea what the gospel is about. So we'll, we'll hand out soccer balls because that's always a great thing. And, uh, and we talk about being on the same team. And then um, uh, our partner, this is in Togo, uh, Kofi Esau will be able to share. Now, Kofi was a former minister of justice for the country. And, uh, and if you show the next slide, he is able, uh, he really has a heart for evangelism. And so that's why we've partnered with them in that part of the world. And uh, our goal is to reach over 100,000 people in that region. And again, the idea is make it sustainable. So then Kofi uh, will share the gospel. And so we were in that village. 
um, it was almost a spontaneous thing. We had dedicated the, the water well, and I said, Kofi, why don't, you, why don't you tell them about the living water, about Jesus? So he shares, and then the, the crowd's there listening. If you look at the next slide, they're, you know, a typical crowd. Some are skeptics. Some are, are interested or engaged. And, uh, and so he begins to share that Christ is, is the, the way, the truth, and the life, and that if you're looking for water, you can find Jesus, and through Jesus, you will thirst no more. And after that, we ask, do you want to accept Jesus? And so in this next slide that I show you, I have this in my office, and it's a very meaningful slide, because if you look at these men up front, they are raising their hands saying, yes, I want to follow Jesus. And it's amazing, because you think about their age, you know, and you thought, well, what if we never showed up at that village? What if we never did that? Would those guys, they would have never heard the gospel. They wouldn't have no access to hearing the gospel. And so I have that in my office as a constant reminder of why we do these things. We, we do put in water wells. We do put in these maternity uh, care units. We do do that as a desire to really help people, like Luke 10. We, we want to help people but we also have the goal of sharing the gospel. And you know what? When you put in a water well, when you put in a health center, people actually want to listen to what you have to say. And so then we're able to share it very naturally, very organically. And so I always look at that picture every day I go to work. I have that in my office. And I, I think of those, those men in that village um, that accepted. And so uh, during the Sunday school, I'm going to share a lot more about uh, we have, again, uh, 14 that are in sub-Saharan Mali, where everywhere we put one, we put a church in. And I asked the, the, the team there to give me an update so I could share that with you this morning. And so I'm going to share some more of that. But I, I want to thank you for being a part of that because of your support and your involvement. Uh, men and women in these villages are not only able to see or have clean water and, and a good pediatric and maternity care, but also to hear the gospel, and uh, many come to Christ uh, every week in these parts of the world that would never have an opportunity to hear. So thank you very much uh, for your support and for your involvement as we uh, go to the uttermost parts of the earth. How can we be praying for you and Joanna uh, during this time? Just, I know you'll be sharing more, but... Um there, there are a couple of requests that we can be specifically be praying about right now. Yeah, I think that uh, for us, uh, that we can keep doing this. We're working now in Benin, a new country next next door, uh, traveling a lot uh, there. We have teams of doctors and nurses that are going, so I'll be praying about that. It's a, it's it's also a difficult part of the world. So if if you would pray for God's protection on us, um, there was a, a coup last week in Niger, which is part of the area that we're in, and. God's sovereignty, we were able to keep these things running, and it's, you know, even though those are difficult situations, um, the health centers keep running, but pray that God watches over the staff, God watches over those who we partner with there in that part of the world. Very good, very good. Why don't we pray for you right now? Okay. And Father, we, uh, we do thank you for the work that you were doing uh, around the world, that you did not leave us helpless, you did not leave us without a helper, you sent your Holy Spirit who is continuing the ministry that you began here on this earth and you're using your people throughout the world you're working in our midst and through us and in us we thank you for your church in in uh in west africa for the people that are coming to know jesus christ 
that have uh, heard the gospel, who have responded to the gospel, for those that you are equipping and, and for the, the, the life that is being prolonged through the things as simple as just having water and, and a place to, um, to get health care, particularly for these mothers and these children. Father, we do pray for this continued work. We pray that you would continue to uh, help Ian and the, the mission that they're working with to, uh, to find these opportunities to um, orchestrate them in a way that would, would exalt the name of Jesus Christ. Father, we do pray for those that are in these areas that are experiencing unrest. Um, we know that you raise kings and you bring kings down. Uh, we know that you are sovereign and in control of, of um, world events and the politics that are around us. Um, but Lord, we also know that, that um, a lot of the events that take place in these countries are bring great heartache and uh, great tragedy to the life of many of our brothers and sisters there. And so we pray for their protection. We pray that the church would flourish. Uh, we pray that these opportunities for the, the water wells and, and the, um, the, the, the care centers uh, would continue to grow. Uh, give Ian and his team wisdom and discernment as to uh, the, the strategies that need to be put into place in order to do those things. And we pray for those um, that are leading the church. Uh, they continue there as well. Please bless them, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. And thank you for sharing. Scripture reading from this morning is from Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, which reads, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Well, it has been quiet around here this week. Um, our associate pastor is in Norway for his sister's wedding, and he comes back, back when, Stephanie? When is, when did your husband come back? Early Tuesday morning, so a couple days. All right, so he's probably getting ready to start packing up and heading this way. So let's continue to pray for, for Jared as he travels. Speaking of traveling, all the kids can travel to the back. We have uh, children's church today, and so the ladies will be back with that. But uh, Jared's been in, in uh, Norway. That's not why it's been quiet around here. It's part of why it's been quiet. But Tammy's in New York with her daughter. Uh, my wife is in Colorado with our daughters, uh, visiting her parents and helping them pack. And so it's been me and David and then nobody here at the church. I can tell you how quiet it's been everywhere. Um, but with that, if we'd be praying for Pastor Jared as he travels back from Norway this week. Also a couple other things, just uh, as, we, as we come before our Lord. Um, be praying for Blake McCloy. He's had an infection in his foot. And uh, Blake comes to our Sunday school class often and grew up in our church and was part of our youth group for many years. Uh, they've been testing for salmonella and um, uh, blood poisoning, um, sepsis, and so trying to figure that out. But that pain's been going up his leg, and we visited a bit the other day, and he's just, um, they're struggling to figure some of those things out, and hopefully the antibiotics will, will fix a lot of that. 
Uh, Keith Walker's also asked us to be praying for him and, and Julie. Uh, Keith has a uh, cancer diagnosis. They'll be doing some surgery, uh, hopefully uh, in October, maybe September, and hopefully that will, will resolve those issues. But uh, he asked us to be praying. He says that they're doing well. Don't need to be bringing meals or, or, or any of that over. Um, but um, he, he does ask for your prayers. And so let's go to our Lord in prayer uh, at this time. Father, we, we do come before you because you are a great God. Uh, you know all of the needs of our lives, all of the small th- cares that we have, and all the, the life-changing, life-altering um, issues that we face as well. Uh, we thank you for your love and your kindness, for your goodness that, that you give to us. We do lift these requests before you. We think of those that are traveling and, and coming home this week. We pray for safety on the road and in the air. Father, we also pray for, for Blake as he uh, continues to deal with post-COVID and the, the immune system that's been compromised this last few years uh, from that. Uh, but we also pray for this, this issue that he's dealing with right now in, um, with leg problems. Please bring him relief. Uh, we also pray for Keith as he uh, has a couple surgeries coming up here this next couple months. We pray that you give all the doctors wisdom and discernment. And Father, we pray that you would use these opportunities for the gospel to go forth, that those around them would, would hear the good news and see the good news that, that has affected their lives in such a profound way. And might people continue to hear of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross and how that changes life, even in the midst of our tragedies. And so please glorify yourself. In their circumstances, we pray for their healing. And also we pray, Lord, as we come to your word, that you would teach us, you would help us to grow, that as we continue to consider this, this idea of compassion and mercy that we've been looking at in the book of Ruth and, and in the life of Jesus, Father, I pray that you would show us the tangible ways that that can be expressed in our lives today. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Well, Jimmy had a problem. Actually, he had many problems, but I had no idea what the depth of what his life was like. All I knew was that Jimmy, and, and that's not his real name, uh, but... Um, Jimmy wasn't like most of the other kids in my class. Uh, first, of all, first off, Jimmy was, was poor. Not from a family that was on a budget, but poor in America. School lunch was his main meal of the day. Uh, he wore tattered clothes and, and only had one change of clothes at that. And Jimmy typically sat by himself in our class. Not because he was looking for solitude, but because Jimmy... Jimmy didn't bathe, and he'd just never been taught. So the kids in the class would keep their dis- distance from Jimmy. From my perspective, that was really the only problem that my limited vision could see about Jimmy, uh, that Jimmy didn't just smell, but he, he carried it with him. I don't remember the circumstances or where things started, but what I do remember is that somehow, at some point, Jimmy and I became acquaintances, and and Jimmy came over to my house at some point. I, uh, in my mind, I think I was probably just trying to be a nice kid that, to somebody that had a problem. I likely intended for him to come, and we were going to play in the backyard or on the playground. But I, I don't remember what was going through my mind at that time or how Jimmy ended up at our place, but I, I know that there was a friendship that developed there. 
But what I do remember is what came next and why that friendship happened. You see, I was about to learn one of the greatest lessons about biblical chesed that we've been learning about in the book of Ruth. Compassion, loving kindness. It was one of the greatest lessons that I have ever witnessed uh, firsthand in my own life about compassion and, and mercy. Forty years later, I, I can kind of imagine the decisions that my parents had to go through when Jimmy came home with me that day. There's a lot of things that went through their mind, and as a parent, as an adult, I can kind of think through some of the questions and the things that they would have faced. I can imagine some of the, um, the questions that went behind, behind closed doors, and, and honestly, I have no idea what they talked about, but what I do know is that as, as a as a child, I have no recollection of my parents ever talking to me or having a conversation with me about the kind of friends that I kept. I, I have no recollection of a discussion about lice coming into our home or about the furniture getting dirty or what things smelled like. What I do remember is my father inviting Jimmy to come inside and to stay for dinner. And he did. I remember Jimmy sitting across the table with wide eyes, uh, not knowing what to do with the portions that were in front of him or how to cut meat. We weren't rich, but you know, I ne- I d- we never went hungry. But that evening, Jimmy dined at our table and many other evenings after that. And then something bigger happened. Somebody invited Jimmy to come to church with us. Probably my dad once again. And so Jimmy did. He started coming to Boys Brigade, which was our version of Awana. And I, I remember, distinctly, I remember the smell in the car. Every, every week, it was, it was something that was obvious, something that was overwhelming. Not just somebody that hadn't taken a bath for a couple of days, but somebody that hadn't taken a bath for three or four weeks or more than that. I don't remember a lot of the conversations that I had with my dad, but I know that we talked at some point about showing compassion and kindness. And while I don't remember the words, I do remember how my father lived it out. And so over those months, every Tuesday night, we picked up Jimmy, or he came over to the house after school, and we we had dinner together, and he went to Boys Brigade with us. We dropped him off at home. But along the way, I I started to discover that, that the hygiene issue was really just the smallest of my new friend's problems turned out that there was never a dad in the picture, and his mother wasn't really there for the most part as well, even though she was present. That's when I I really discovered what poverty in America looks like, what true poverty can be. And I I, I learned what compassion looks like as I watched my father play this role in Jimmy's life uh, with a kid that, uh, who never had a father. We built the little stock car, the, the, what do they call them, the Pinewood Derbies uh, for Boys Brigade, and, and Jimmy was right there building one next to us, getting to play a part in, in activities and social life that he really hadn't before. And he became part of our lives. Jimmy heard the gospel. Jimmy heard about God's word and how he has a heavenly father who loves him. My dad even had the compassion to have some of those hard conversations with Jimmy so that he'd be able to go forward in life and and have relationships with people and and I I wasn't present obviously for those conversations but I I knew that in the most loving way possible my father talked to him about some of the stuff that I just took for granted because my parents had taught me all those things growing up the everyday stuff and I was a a very young Christian at this point 
But my father was one of the first people who truly demonstrated what kind of what God's compassion looks like. This is the chesed that we've been seeing lived out through the lives of Ruth and Boaz and, and Naomi. This is the grace and this is the compassion that we've watched in our Savior as our Lord, Lord during his life. Uh, uh, particularly last week, we looked at the day, w- w- excuse me, we looked, <laughs> wow. Uh, we looked at a day in, in Jesus' life when his cousin had been beheaded and, and all the things that, that happened and kept, kept, kept on coming. But the compassion that he showed to other people around him, even in the midst of his own suffering, his own trials. Next week, we'll be talking, uh, taking a look at, at Chesed and the life of the leader in the church and, and, and what God has called us to do as elders and deacons and pastors. But, but this morning, I'd like you to return again to the life of our Lord and turn with me to the, the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 9. Again, this chapter, it, it seems to be, was in the middle of, of all the busyness of ministry. And Jesus is physically tired. He's going about one thing to the next, healing people, teaching people. It's not certain how many of the events in chapter 8 happened in one day, but within that chapter, he heals the centurion's servant. He heals Peter's mother-in-law, and we, we know that that happened on the same day that he was teaching in the synagogue, and he probably healed the man that had the withered hand as well. But because of the crowds, he, he and his disciples at some point, whether it was on the same day that all those things happened or not, at some point they got in the boat because the crowds were, were bearing down. And, and so they got in a boat, and Jesus is so tired, he, he falls asleep in the boat while they're out on the sea. He calmed the storm uh, because he was woken, woken up by the disciples who um, were afraid. And when they got to the other side, they were met by two demon-possessed men who, whom he healed. And, and then after a short stay, the people came out and said, please, leave us, leave our, leave our region. They didn't like the consequences of this man who brought healing and, and hurt their business. That leads us to the statement in verse 1 where we're told in chapter 9, and getting into a boat, he crossed over and he came to his own city. So it's been a f- busy few days, hasn't it? And soon after they arrived back in Capernaum, we're told, behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. That's all Matthew speaks about, but if you read Mark and, and Luke, you also discover that, that these people uh, weren't able to actually get to Jesus, and so how did they resolve the situation? They start digging at the roof. They climbed up on the roof, and they, they, they dug a hole so they could lower this man down into the room where Jesus was. I mean, that's bold, isn't it? You, you come to a, a house, the, the home of somebody you might know or don't know, and you just start tearing their roof apart so you can get down and and get a front row seat to have your hen friend healed. Now, let's pause for a second, though, and consider what was going through the mind of Jesus' disciples at that point. If it, if it was you and somebody had started digging a hole right here, and we had Jesus speaking that day, and somebody digged a hole in our ceiling, and, and somebody comes, you know, down, what, what's going through your mind as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus? That's kind of rude, right? You know, do you know how much money that costs? Uh, roofs and those days were, were a little bit less expensive, but still, this is somebody's home. And, and he interrupted the teaching. You know, Jesus is teaching the people. What an amazing opportunity. A few days earlier was the Sermon on the Mount, and, 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 and the people want to hear more, and, and he's teaching, and in the middle of that, 
they're interrupted by some guy who comes through the ceiling. Most of us don't like having our routines interrupted, don't we? But that's not how Jesus responded. Notice, as, as we discover how Jesus first taught mercy, observe with me what it was that Jesus saw when all that happened. It goes on and says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. The text doesn't tell us that Jesus saw a hole in the roof. He didn't focus on the fact that his teaching had been interrupted. Jesus saw the faith of these individuals. And then he addresses the paralytic man. He, he calls him son, child. Uh, it's a term of, of endearment. Uh, he says, take heart. Uh, it means to, to have courage. Um, he, he encourages him. He says, you know, glad you're here. Thanks for coming. Take heart. It's a phrase that minimizes the awkwardness of the situation and, and lets him know that he's in the company of a friend. But then Jesus surprises everyone with his response to the faith of this man's friends. And he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, the first thing that you might notice is that that is not what the guy came for, is it? He didn't, didn't say they lowered him to the roof and he says, hey, I have a problem. You know, I, I'm, I'm struggling with sin. Can you forgive me? He, he came to be healed. And, and instead, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And, and the beauty of what we find in this, the mercy of Jesus, is throughout his ministry, Jesus was keenly aware of the physical needs of the people. Just last week when we looked at the, the feeding of the 5,000, all the people had come to hear Jesus' teaching and then he turns to the disciples because he realizes that the people have been there all day and they've walked all the way around the lake. And he says, give them something to eat. He realized that they were hungry and he, he had compassion on them. And, and so Jesus saw the physical needs of people. He cared that they were hungry. He cared that they were sick. Here I believe that Jesus truly cares about this man's physical condition. But the beauty of the mercy of Jesus is that that while he was keenly aware of all of those needs, he never lost sight of the more desperate need that we have as mankind or that this individual had of forgiveness. Jesus understands that, that we are in, in darkness. We need a Savior. We, we need forgiveness, for, for we are sinners who have no hope without God's mercy. We are helpless. And so Jesus offers this man something far greater than the restoration of his body. He offers to this man the restoration of a relationship with God. He goes to the man, he says, your sins are forgiven. Well, that drew some responses though, didn't it? Verse 3, behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think this evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk? Now, which is easier? Which one's easier? To say your sins are forgiven and, and for it to be true? Or, or get up and walk? How, how many of you were able to go down to the hospital and make a paralytic walk? Anybody done that this last week? Month? A year? You know, none of us, no. 
But how many of you are able to offer forgiveness of sin? Not just forgive somebody personally for an offense, but to forgive them of sin. Anybody? It's just as impossible, isn't it? None of us are able to, to offer that kind of forgiveness in which we would forgive someone for the sin that they have violated uh, against the holy God. And the teachers knew that it was impossible. They knew that it's impossible for us, for mankind, to forgive the sin that only God can forgive. They knew that it was impossible for this, for, for this paralytic to be healed. But Jesus, Jesus, I believe, is teaching them a, a very important lesson about his mercy here. It is impossible for men to do either of those things. But we know that Jesus is not a mere man. He is God himself. And so in his mercy, he grants forgiveness to those who believe in him. But, but he, wasn't going to just, he wasn't just going to teach them with words. He showed them what he's able to do, uh, that he's even able to do the, the more impossible thing, to forgive sins. And so he continues and says, but, but that you may know that the Son of God has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. The big takeaway here that Jesus wanted them to understand, that he wanted the crowds to understand, that he wanted religious leaders to understand, and certainly that this man understood, was that Jesus has power over sin. He'd been healing people left and right. People have been coming from all over the place to, to find healing. But that wasn't the, the main problem. They needed something more important than that, to be right with their creator. And Jesus has the power to forgive. But notice that not only the, that mercy was taught that day, but briefly look at verse 9 where we also see mercy's calling. and Because the, the day goes on. It says that Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. I, here's this beautiful testimony of a, a man who wrote the gospel of Matthew that we're reading right now. And uh, we know that he was a tax collector. He was also named Levi. Um, we know that these men were despised by the people, more so than, than most other, uh, others in society, uh, more than we despise, would despise an IRS agent coming to your home. The tax collectors in, in this day, were, they were seen as, as traitors that had, had actually left their community and they had joined the enemy. They had joined the invaders who had taken over their land and now they were taking money away from their own people and giving it to a foreign government. And so the, even though Matthew was a Jew, he was seen as worse than a Gentile because he had betrayed his own people. And so he didn't have the normal friends that, that you and I would have. That's why we see Matthew hanging around the kind of people that, that we'll see in the next few verses. But again, we're told that Jesus saw something. He saw Matthew. And Jesus looks past all of those things in Matthew's life. He looks past his occupation and, and, and the people that he was hanging around and the types of things that were happening around him. 
just as he's looked past all of your baggage, and he's looked past my baggage, and he saw Matthew. And Matthew was probably one of the last individuals that anyone would expect to follow Jesus. He was probably one of the last individuals that anybody would think would want to follow Jesus. But Jesus saw him, and he asked him to follow him. Matthew was called, and Matthew followed, which is spectacular. Uh, I've thought a little bit about the the situations, uh, you know, what does it mean to follow Jesus in those circumstances? Uh, we, we love the passage where the, you know, John and, and, and Peter and, and James and Andrew are out on the fishing boats, and Jesus calls to them and says, come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. What, what did that mean for them? I mean, they left everything, right? They left their occupations, and, and they went and they followed Jesus. But their dad was still fishing, right? They still had the family business. In fact, later on in the, book of, in the Gospel of John, we're, we're told that when they were so discouraged, when Peter was so discouraged with how he had failed his Lord and, and, and how he had, he had denied him three times, and he thought, you know, this is over, and all these things I've invested my life in for three years, what does Peter do? He says, I'm going fishing. He went back to his occupation. So these guys had something to go back to, but Matthew, when he follows Jesus, what does that mean for him? I mean, the Roman government's not going to say, hey, you left your post, come on back. He left everything. Probably didn't have a job to, like that to go back to. But he followed. He left everything behind. And, and I think it's, it's this amazing picture of what Jesus has asked you to do, isn't it? It's the same thing. His calling to you is the same as with Matthew. Will you follow him? Will you leave everything behind from your former life? All the sin, all the stuff that you hold on to and that, that you loved more than Jesus. And will you leave it behind? Will you put Jesus in front of everything else in your life because he is the one who has power over sin to forgive sin in your life as well? We must follow him. If, if we don't, where else shall we go? This is the call. We follow him. But also notice mercy in action. Uh, Luke fills in the next couple of verses that Matthew kind of skips over. He fills in some of these gaps. We find in Luke chapter 5 um, that we learn that Matthew uh, made him a great feast in his house. And, and so Matthew goes on. He, he follows Jesus. And one of the first things he does is he throws this elaborate feast. A- and who's he invite over? Yeah, the tax collectors. And, uh, and I like how Luke says it, the, the others. Who, who are the others? Yeah, those other people. Uh, and so uh, these others is a polite way of saying those that normally aren't going to your, your not, not your normal church crowd, okay? But, but I love this. Matthew's following Jesus. And, and so one of the very first things that he does is he invites his crowd to meet Jesus because Jesus has forgiven the sin in his life and and called him and and now he wants his friends and he wants his co-workers and he wants the people around him to meet Jesus as well. A few years ago I got a glimpse of what that might have been like for Matthew and his friends uh, when I was working back at a a fancy steakhouse in Texas. And and the people that I worked with were, um, were this kind of crowd. 
Um, you, you think, it, you know, when you, go up into it, when you go up into fancy restaurants, you know, you, you work at McDonald's and, and then you move your way up to something like Olive Garden and then, and then you go to this, you know, all the, the um, decorations and the fancy plates and the fancy glasses and, and the incredible service. And you think that, that the people you're working with must be these really high-class society individuals, right? And what I found is, is the higher up you go in the restaurant industry, uh, the rougher it gets. Uh, you work with a lot of kids in, in a lot of these restaurants, but when you get into these five-star dining places, a lot of the individuals that I was working with, at least, um, you know, these were the people that had a reputation like Matthew did. These were the people that you're not supposed to spend time with them. And uh, on this one particular occasion, um, I, I, uh, there was a couple individuals that I worked with that, in, that in invited everybody over to their house for a party. And you know, first of all, a after hours you know, with, with um, the restaurant industry, their, their life entailed lots of activities that I politely can't uh, recount here. But um, as I worked with w in the restaurant, you know, these individuals knew that I was in ministry. They knew that I was going to seminary. They knew that I taught the college group at, at the church that I attended and, and that I had been a pastor. Uh, they affectionately called me Rev Riv and uh, Reverend River. And... Um, Neither title I really ever embraced, but but I embraced it with them. It was it was um, I loved it. Um, they knew who I was, and for some of them, that meant that I was the enemy. Uh, for others, it, it it meant that it made me an object that was alien in nature, and it but I was really intriguing to be around. And and then there were others that were hungry for the good news. They were hungry for something that could could deliver them from from the life that they were in they were hungry for good news that god might forgive them and I'll, and I'll tell you some of the most incredible opportunities to share the gospel happened in those conversations after work um, with some of those individuals but one of the couples that i worked with invited everyone over to their apartment after work on one occasion i accepted their invite and came over for the first hour of the party i knew that it wouldn't be good if i stayed past that but um, but it was an occasion to to spend some time with my my coworkers and and to get to know them a little bit better and I'll never forget the response of my friends. I, I I came over to their apartment and the door opened and I was greeted by my friend and he said you made it glad you're here and then his girlfriend who was also a coworker or bartender she ran over and said you're here you're in our apartment and I said yeah thanks for the invite of course. And she says, no, you're here. Rev Riv is in our apartment. I thought, <laughs> first I thought, what in the world, you know, but you know, it's just me, I'm the guy. But there was this, there was this um, demeanor that, that, that I wasn't, they weren't beneath me coming to their house. And I thought, after she said that, it crossed my mind what Matthew must have felt like when Jesus, the Son of God, who is without sin and who forgives the sins of the world, when the Son of God came over to his house to meet his people. What would have that have been like for Matthew? This would have been an amazing honor, something that he never would have imagined possible that the rabbi would come over to his house. But he had discovered 
mercy's calling, and he had become a follower of Jesus. But this also would have been an amazing offense to the religious leaders of that day, because that's just not how you did things. Ever been through cultural lines that you've seen crossed before? And you went, ugh, how dare they? Or maybe you did it, and people looked at you and said, call themselves a Christian, right? Look at verses 10 to 13. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners come, came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, Jesus left the traditions of his day to show compassion on those who carried the label. Jesus had, had shown that, that he had power over sin. And, and now he has truly offended the religious leaders by showing mercy in action. But you see, they had missed the heart of the law. Their lives had become all about following the rules. Their lives revolved around the law of Moses and the Old Testament and how they would implement that. And so that they wouldn't break any of those laws, they built all these extra laws, these extra rules to, to kind of create a buffer around all of that. And then they imposed all those extra laws that became more important than the actual law of Moses itself. And their life became all about keeping rules and, and, and they forgot about the most important thing, the heart of the gospel, the heart of the law, and that was compassion and God's love for these people. They forgot to see those in need. And all their sacrifice and all the rigidness that their rule following required of them, they missed God's love the unlovables discovering jesus power over sin not only means that we discover the forgiveness of our great savior and what it means to show forgiveness to others jesus power over sin not only means that we discover the joy of following jesus and bringing others to jesus but it also discovering the power that jesus the power that jesus has over sin it leads us to compassion to seeing those who are in need around us to leaving our comfort zone, to reach out to others that, that others may not want to touch. To seeing the, the hurts of real people's lives in your home, your classmates, the people you work with, your neighbors, the people that society tells you you don't want to spend time with them. There's a great story of a farmer who had four puppies he needed to sell. So he painted a sign, tacked it up on the post, and, and uh, as he was driving in the last nail, he felt a tug on his overalls. He looked down into the eyes of a little boy. Mister, the boy said, I want to buy one of your puppies. Well, the farmer said as he rubbed the sweat off the back of his neck. These puppies come from fine parents, and they cost a good deal of money. The boy dropped his head for a moment, and then reaching deep into his pocket, 
pulled out some change and, and he held it up to the farmer and he says, I've got 39 cents. Is that enough to take a look? He said, sure. So with that, he let out a whistle. Here, Dolly. And out from the doghouse came, and down the ramp came, came Dolly, followed by four little balls of fur. The little boy pressed his face against the chain-link fence. His eyes danced with delight as the dogs made their way to the fence. The little boy then noticed something else, though, stirring inside the doghouse. Slowly, another little ball appeared. This one noticeably smaller. Down the ramp it slid, and then in a somewhat awkward manner, the little pup began hobbling toward the others, doing its best to catch up. He said, I, I want that one, the little boy said, pointing to the runt. The farmer knelt down at the boy's side and said, son, you don't want that puppy. He's lame. He's the runt of the litter. His back legs don't work. He will never be able to run and play with you like these other little dogs will. And at that, the little boy stepped back from the fence, and reaching down, he began rolling up one leg of his trousers, and in doing so, he revealed a steel brace running down both sides of his leg, attaching itself to a specifically made shoe. Looking back at the farmer, he said, You see, sir, I don't run very well myself, and this little puppy's going to need somebody who understands. With tears in his eyes, the farmer reached down. He picked up the little pup, holding it carefully. He handed it to the little boy. How much? asked the boy. He said, no charge. You see, we, we have a beautiful Savior who understands us. And he's not just a God who, who's, who's outside of our world that, that can't and doesn't uh, understand what we go through. Even though he's all-knowing, all-powerful, we have a God who stepped into our world and he became one of us and he experienced the suffering that we experienced. He experienced the trials of this life. He experienced the hurts, the pain, the death, the sin that destroys everything. He saw it all. He watched it. And he understands our weakest state. And he shows us what it means when Hosea said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You see, the problem back in Hosea is all the people were making all these sacrifices and they were neglecting the poor. In fact, they were trampling the poor and they were continuing their idolatry and they'd, they'd worship Yahweh at the temple and then they'd go up to the high places and they'd start, they'd start sacrificing to all their idols. But then they'd bring their sacrifices and say, oh, we're worshiping God because look at all the sacrifices we're making as they trampled over the poor. And Hosea says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. All your sacrifices mean nothing to me. I want your mercy instead, your compassion. Jesus taught them that day about that. But the lessons were not quite over. Next came a, a more honorable group of men that came to Jesus. These were the followers of John the Baptist. Uh, he hasn't died by this time of our story. And in verse 14, it says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The day, days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they, then they will fast. You, you see, God had prescribed in the law a day of fasting and mourning, which was called the Day of Atonement. 
It, it was a day uh, which people would mourn over their sin. It was a, a day to sacrifice, and it was a day for a scriptural fast. But the problem was is that the Pharisees had added to the rules. And rather than this one day every year in which, with the, in which the, the people would fast and mourn over their sin, the Pharisees had added a fast every Monday and every Thursday. Can you imagine? But they were intent on following their rules. And so twice a week they would fast. And this was observed by the Pharisees and it was observed by others, including John's disciples. And Jesus knew that. He knew that true fasting results from sorrow. Note that he uses the word to mourn, to mourn over our sin, to have sorrow over our sin. True fasting is a result from sorrow, not from ritual. And Jesus knew that his disciples would truly mourn after his crucifixion. And having all these extra fasts on Monday and Thursday and adding rules upon rules, that that wasn't what Christianity was going to look like. But there's another problem taking place here that Jesus is going to address. You see, the disciples of John, they were taking a broken system that the Pharisees had instituted in which they added to the Day of Atonement all these other fasts twice a week and, and all these extra rules. And, and the disciples of John, what were they doing? They were watch, watching the religious leaders of their day and saying, oh, this is what it means to, to love God. And, and so they were following those same rules, those same extras that they had added to the law. And so John the Baptist followers were doing some of the same things. They were imitating a broken system. They're putting a Band-Aid on the problem. Have you ever done that? Ever try to fix something with a Band-Aid that needs, needs duct tape? Back in the 70s, we used to have uh, these iron-on patches that, that we would put... Um, put on our the holes on, on my pants you get jeans that were ratty and but they could they could make it another year and so you these iron-on stick-on things and you put them on there and uh and then what would happen inevitably that the hole would get bigger because the patch didn't match the cloth that it got put on and so the the jeans would would rip even further and jesus says in verse 16 he says no one puts a, on unshrunk cloth Excuse me, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is, is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Uh, basically what would happen in, in ancient days, you know, we, we live in a day where you go down to the, the store, if you want a bottle of wine, it comes in a big glass thing. But... In, in Jesus' day, they would make wine and they would, they would take the skin of an animal and, and they would put the grape juice into this, um, this piece of leather, uh, sometimes made from the bladder of an animal, and um, this, this new leather, this new bladder, what would happen? As the wine fermented, it, it would expand. A and, and with the wine expanding, the the the, uh, the wine skin would also expand it would stretch and it would hold the wine and so it could contain it a and then they would pour the wine they drink it out after it was ready and then it'd be time to make new wines so what they do y you take this old wine skin right and you put wine in it and that leather is all hardened now it's it's weathered and and it's 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 not fresh it's not pliable and so the wine would expand and what would happen to the wine skin 
it was brittle. It burst. It, it couldn't take the pressure of the fermenting grape juice that was inside. And, and so this new wineskin, this old wineskin would, would break, and, and now you've wasted a good wineskin that could hold water and carry other things, and you've wasted the wine. What's Jesus talking about? Do you see what he's saying? He says, look, you, um, you're taking an old system, and, and you're repeating the same mistakes. And, and you're taking the law of Moses and, and something that was good, and in its context was intended to show the people their sin. It was, in showed, it was intended to, to bring people to God, but, but it was never the, the, the final solution. Jesus is. And, and so the disciples of, of John, they're, they're just basically implementing all the same rules from a, a broken system that the Pharisees were implementing. And Jesus comes along and says, that's not what I want Christianity to look like. I don't want you imitating all the problems that the Pharisees have imposed and impose all these other rules where they've missed compassion instead. I, I put it, if I could put it in a, a little bit more of a modern illustration, um, a couple weeks ago my computer crashed. I came into work and I was just gone. I, I wouldn't reboot. Uh, the power source was completely obliterated. You know, thankfully the, I have an associate pastor that, that knows computers and he has this really cool device and we pulled the hard drive out. I, I, I bought a new computer, and within four hours, I was back up and running and had everything restored to, the, to what it used to be. I mean, that's incredible. But then I came across this dilemma. I'm, I'm putting all these millions of files that I've collected over 50 years, and, and they're on my old computer, and I'm transferring to the new one, and I've got folders and folders and folders of these old graphics from, you know, 1990s and early 2000s, GIFs. Remember those? And these little animated files. And I've got all these music files. I, my entire CD collection from the time I was two years old. CDs didn't exist then, but, but you get the idea. And all this music. And at one point or another, I had copied all of that music, and I put all that music onto my hard drive and uploaded it so I could listen to it whenever I wanted. But what's the problem with this new computer that I bought last month? Am I going to use any of those graphics files? Am I going to use any of those music files that are on there when I have Spotify and I can download something and stream it? I, you see, there's, there's new instruments going on. And how many of you like listening to your eight tracks? <laughs> other than Craig, other than Craig. We all know you like listening to your eight track. <laughs> Do you still have eight tracks? You know where they're at? Okay. I was just curious. Who wants to store their new pictures? and their videos on a 15 millimeter reel. It, it, it's, why, why would you do that when you have a better system? You see, Jesus is saying, look, I want to digitally remaster Christianity. The Christianity that I want you implementing, the compassion that I want you showing, I want you to go out and I want you to change the world. I want you to go into all the world and preach the good news of what I came to offer on the cross. But we're not going to do it like the old system. We're not going to put a patch on a tear in the cloth that's just going to make it worse. We're not going to put something new and better in the old wineskin of the law because it won't fit what the gospel is going to do. And when the gospel grows and, and, and the, the gospel goes into all the world, this thing called the law that's implemented within Israel, it, it, it's going to explode. It can't handle what I've come to bring.
But that means getting out of our comfort zones. That means following the king of kings. He has power over sin. He forgives us, calls us to follow him. And therefore, we are called to put mercy into action and meet real needs. It means we need to stop being afraid of the dirt and the emotional commitments that it means to love those whom Jesus loves. Does your Christianity click and moan like a dusty reel-to-reel projector? Or are you experiencing the clear and living reality of a Savior who truly has power over sin?